Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. This week, I'm speaking with Marcy Warhoft. Trauma overload destroyed Marcy's self-esteem and left her grasping for control, leading to years of eating disorders, promiscuity, and doing things she wasn't proud of to survive. In her book, The Good Stripper, she chronicles a double or even triple life, mother by day, stripper by night, and obsessed fitness fanatic in between. By taking back and owning her own story, Marcy has found, at 50, a way back to the self she lost at 17. I was still so afraid if I was too much me, then people would, for some reason, that my past would come out and then it would destroy me, it would destroy my family. And I just got to this point where I was like, why, why do I care? I've been through a lot. I've survived it. And I'm just tired of hiding. It really, maybe I was just tired. I don't know. But I felt like I deserved to be happy. I did. I finally felt like I deserved to be happy. And I felt the only way I could do that was to be honest. Hi, Marcy. How are you? Thank you for joining me. I am good, and I'm happy to be here, getting ready to chat. You are joining me from Canada, am I right? Yes, I'm in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Excellent. We hear a lot of American accents on the podcast, so I thought I would point out to everyone, you are actually in Canada. That's right. Represent. Exactly. So I want to take us back, maybe not to the very beginning, but tell me a bit about your childhood and growing up. The funny thing is, I think people who know my life and my story would be surprised to hear me say that I loved my childhood, that I, when I think about my childhood, I think I had a really good childhood. I was this really happy, confident kid. I was always dancing and singing in plays and at summer camp, and I played sports, and I was super confident and outspoken about things. And I think that came from having a mother who was really loving, despite the fact she came from really terrible parents herself, she was just love personified. And she made me feel very encouraged and really like I could do anything and safe. And then I had an older brother who was also just tremendous at making me feel like he had my back, like I was safe in the world because he was there. And he thought I was fun and funny and smart. And I think that went a long way. So I really... Everything was great. And then when I turned 10, life was like, hold on a second. <laughs> Wait a second. It's not going to be that easy. And it was really a 10 when things changed for me. Just a little bit. I mean, my parents got divorced, which isn't, it's not such a surprising thing. However, in 1980, there was no other kid in my school who had divorced parents. So it was different. And my father left. But mm-hmm. My mother made him leave, but he didn't want to be there. He didn't have any use for his kid. I had an older, I have an older sister and I was the youngest of three. And he just, he wanted wine, women, and song, you know, and didn't want to be tied down and left and didn't help my mother at all. So she was left to raise three children on her own. And that was difficult at the same time because my mother was so amazing. It was fine. It was, yeah. I think the rest of us got closer. And so that's why still, I don't, feel that was traumatic. It wasn't great, but I still think I was okay. It wasn't until I was 17 when my life completely changed. And I mean, completely changed. And that was when my brother, who I said, again, I adored, I always refer to him as the invisible armor I wore out in the world to protect me. My mom was my safe place to come home to, and he was my armor out in the world. He got sick and he was 21 and I was 17 and he died. And that 
completely shook up my world for many reasons. For one thing, I knew he was ill, but he, it, was, it wasn't like I saw it coming at all. And I think even though he was in the hospital, he'd had a liver disease that took a very long time to diagnose. So I think my mother wanted to protect me and to protect herself. And so she didn't tell me how bad the situation was. So right. it was not even the tiniest part of my brain that thought my brother, who was very athletic and charming and good looking, I, I, he was going to get better. That was just, there was no question in my mind. And I was in the middle of writing my last English exam for high school when my principal came in and just escorted me out of the room without talking to me and sent me into the office. And there was my friend of the family to tell me that Billy just died. And I was completely blindsided. Such an interesting thing how parents parents tend to. I just was actually speaking to a friend. A friend mm -hmm. of mine just found out that his dad has cancer, and fortunately, he is in a place where he's. It looks like he's going to be okay, but they were trying to protect him by not telling him. And mm -hmm. my mom was ill last year, and she didn't tell us for the longest time to try to protect mm -hmm. us. And I think it's so much more difficult when you're not given the option or when you don't know. If something had happened, if my mom had been as sick as she could have been and she died and didn't tell me, I would have been furious. <laughs> I'm obviously incredibly sad, but also furious. But it's interesting how parents do try to protect mm -hmm. you sometimes to your own to your own peril. I'll tell you, it, it's uh, not to jump ahead, but just to go back to that for one second and to connect. Absolutely. And I understand what she was doing. I think she said to me once later on that keeping me home from an exam is a big deal. Like it's a big deal to not write your final exam. So in her mind, had she kept me home, it would have been admitting to herself how dire the situation was. And she right. couldn't accept that. So it's that whole kind of thing of if I send her to school, then everything will be okay. That kind of thing. And for me, yeah, I did feel blindsided because I say this all the time, but it's very true that the last minute I can remember ever feeling completely safe in the world was the minute before I found out that Billy died. And it was this feeling of, it hit me on so many levels. It hit me on, here was this kid, again, who was very athletic and very popular. And it didn't make sense to me. I didn't even know anyone who had a grandparent that died. And here, my brother, 21 years mm -hmm. old, it, it, that, so any kind of... Feeling they say teenagers feel invincible, you know, which is yeah. why they take chances. And I didn't have that anymore. I thought if anything bad's going to happen, it's going to happen to me because I've already seen that feeling of safety was just gone. Plus, there was this guilt I had. I felt like the world needed him more than it needed me. I felt that mm. if my mother had lost me, she'd still have a daughter and a son. Oh, wow. And so I felt like it should have been me. I felt it should have been me. And I went through most of my life feeling that it should have been me. And I think at that moment, subconsciously, I decided, okay, if I'm going to be here instead of him, I have to earn my spot. Mm -hmm. And it didn't come from anyone. I remember saying to my mother that the exact same thing. If I had gone, you'd have a daughter and a son. And she said, but I wouldn't have my Marcy. And what would I do without my Marcy? She was fantastic. But there's just how we think, how we work. And so part of me thought, okay, so I have to earn my spot. I'm not super intelligent. I'm not that interesting. I'm not that funny. I'm not that talented. What can I do? And at 17 years old, even back in the 80s, there was a societal pressure about how mm. you look. 
I think probably more in the 80s than in... Maybe. There wasn't the... Funny, because we have the social media now. Yeah. But we don't... But I guess the good thing with the internet is that along with the negative messages, you do get... We are getting an influx of positive messages too. There wasn't the body positivity. There wasn't any of that. Absolutely. So developed an eating disorder. And I always say Billy's death gave birth to my eating disorder because it became, it was A, I'm going to be as skinny as possible because for, for some reason that was like something, but then also it was control. And that's what a lot of, a big part of eating, eating disorders are based around control. I could not control anything else in my life. That's how I felt. I felt mm. the world was terrifying. What is the one thing I can control? It's my body. It's what I eat and what I don't eat. And so that's, that became, oh, that became my coping mechanism for years. And just for one second to go ahead, because you mentioned parents protecting, many years later, I still had my mom and we were very close and she got cancer and she didn't tell me how sick she mm. was. And I was, fast forward now, I lost Billy at 17. I was 28 pregnant after having two miscarriages and I was living across the country. And we spoke three times a day because we were that close. And I knew she had cancer. She battled cancer, but I didn't know it was back and it was so serious. And I literally did not know until I had gone for my first ultrasound. I was planning a trip back home for the end of the week. And my sister called me and said, you need to come home today. And I said, I'm coming home in four days. And she said, mom's dying and she won't make it. <sighs> and I flew back pregnant. She didn't want to tell me because I had had two miscarriages and she didn't want to stress me out. But I get it. But <laughs> this stressed me out. I flew back and I got to see her for less than 24 hours. And then she died. And I was five and a half months pregnant. And without my mom, and I never thought I'd have a minute as a mom without my mom. Not to jump ahead, but just to what you said, when you're like, what if my mom? I'm like, I know, because that's what happened. Yeah. And I do feel like it's all about protecting. You want to protect, but especially once you're an adult. I understand when you're 17, it's you're still, I don't want to put the school pressures. I don't want to, whatever that is. But especially once you're an adult and you can make that decision. I am grown enough that I can control my stress levels. And I, I get it. Like, of course, she doesn't want to put your body under any other stresses when you've already had two miscarriages. But it's just so hard when you don't have the choice. Absolutely. Thank goodness I was able to get in and to see her for a few hours and to show her the ultrasound. But yeah, and I'll tell you something. It's I've had people say, I've had people say to me, how did you get through or how did you get over the deaths of your mother and brother? And I'm like, I'll let you know when it happens because yeah. I'm still gutted. I'm still absolutely gutted from their loss. So losing my brother sent me on this kind of spiral of feeling, going from feeling like this little girl who could do anything to feeling like I wasn't worth anything and I didn't deserve anything. And just to say too, I recently read, you were saying you had to be like the best you you could be to make up for the fact that you didn't feel like you were meant to be around anymore. And I was just reading statistically how it's very often high achieving girls because of the control issue, because of yeah. the, I have to be the best. I have to be the best. So I have to be the skinniest. I have to be the, so if you were trying to make up for, or make yourself this perfect person and I think you were already feeling some body pressure, as most of us did at that time of our lives, for sure. I can imagine how difficult it was. And like you said, the only way I can take control is what I put in my mouth. Yeah, ab 
Absolutely. And I'll tell you, in my book, so I won't get into the story, but it's worth reading to find out I did have a doctor at that time who told me I needed to lose weight to fit into society, even though I was already lean and fit. And he just was very negligent, very negligent. But that set me over an edge. I had just been accepted into a theater school after high school and I dropped out and I was lost. And I ended up moving to another province. Now, I'll just say this, without, so I don't get into the whole thing. <laughs> My life from there continued with loss. I think the theme would be loss. I had a lot of loss and a lot of betrayal. And it went from a stepfather who ended up being a bank robber and then meeting my husband at the time who seemed great, but who ended up not being the person that I thought he was. And, but getting married and having the miscarriages and having a baby. And then I went through the universe was like, she's had some emotional pain. So let's throw some physical challenges at her. And I ended up in the hospital for months with kidney failure and respiratory failure from just a bizarre, a bizarre illness that puzzled doctors, but I wasn't expected to live to see my thirties. And, but I did because I'm a fighter, got pregnant again, had my, had my second miracle baby. But that is when my life changed again because I got out of the hospital. I had another baby, been through a lot of loss and my relationship changed. So my partner, my husband, uh, without getting into too much detail about him, although I do in the book, he was somebody who presented himself as the normal one, the mm. responsible one, the conservative one. And it was very easy for me to seem like this and I was a free spirit despite everything I had been through, but I was like the wild one, the crazy one. And I fell into that role and felt that, that maybe that was the thing. Like maybe he was the smart one and the responsible one and I was the crazy one. And so when he wanted to change the dynamics of our marriage, he wanted to open up our marriage. He wanted me to sleep with his friends. He wanted me to do a whole bunch of things um, that I wasn't interested in. At that point, because I'd had so much trauma and recent trauma, I went into something that one of my therapists said, she described it as traumatic overload. Yes. So it was just, it was almost like I dissociated. Your, it, your body takes over and says, you can't take anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to separate your emotional self from the rest of you just so you could cope. And I felt at the time because I was, at, I was estranged from my sister, mm -hmm. didn't have extended family. My father I was not in my life. Again, my mother died. My brother, like It was just me and my husband. And I felt at this point that he no longer saw me as a wife, but more as this toy to be played and shared. And I started to feel like taking me back to when I was 17 and felt like I need to earn my spot here. I felt like I had two purposes and one was to be the best mother I could because I really wanted my kids to have the best life. I wanted them to feel as loved as I had felt when I was younger. But the other part of it was I needed to find my worth or my value through my sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's where I felt my purpose isn't the right word, but I guess value. So I would be Marcy who was taking care of her babies who were toddlers. And then there was that the other part of me that fell into the swinging lifestyle with my husband, but then also felt like I felt he was trying to control me. And I had this rebellious part of me that I wish 
I wish the rebel in me would have said, this isn't okay and I deserve better and I'm going to leave. But instead it was like, you think you can control me? I'll show you. And I just became more promiscuous and was going to do my own thing. And because I didn't feel he valued me and I felt that other men were attracted to me. And since I felt that wasn't the only thing I was good for, that's what I, I needed. What was happening with your eating disorder when all this is happening? Because I would imagine even if you had overcome it at that point, it would be very easy to be triggered back into that life. Well, I had tried for decades to get some sort of help with it, but nothing was the right thing. And then even when I got sick, you have to, I was in a hospital for two months. I was on a ventilator for two and a half weeks. I was given a 25% chance of survival. I remember then thinking, I will never worry about my weight again. This is crazy. Like, I'm never going to worry about that again if mm-hmm. I can get out of here. I had to learn how to walk again and talk again and breathe again on my own. Like, it was bad. And then very quickly, <laughs> it didn't last. Like, it doesn't because it's not, people think that eating disorders are about vanity. It's so not. For me, it was my sanity. It just wasn't. And like you said, there was, was so much trauma. It was my crutch. It was my, safe place to go to, even though it was so incredibly unsafe. So yeah, I was absolutely still obsessed with working out. I belonged to two gyms that were 24-hour gyms because one had the audacity to be closed on Christmas, I mean. Oh, how dare they? (laughs) Right. And I would work out in the middle of the night because why? The hours that you could be exercising, why why would I sleep? That's for lazy people. And I was also, I got involved with a trainer who said that he could have me looking like a fitness model. And I was like, Okay, but you have to pay for that. And this is the other part of my story. I felt, okay, I really wanted that. I wanted to train with him, but I didn't want to take money from the household because I wasn't contributing. One would argue I was raising two toddlers, I'm contributing. But I felt like I, it wasn't fair because I wasn't bringing in money to spend money on myself. And that's such a thing about the control as well, because, you know, you're mm-hmm. already trying to get control with this eating disorder. You're already trying to get control by just using your body because you feel like this is the one thing I have. And then so often a partner, whether they do it intentionally or not, but I think in this case, definitely intentionally, can exercise control because even though you are contributing by raising these children and by probably contributing way more in the household, because there's not a money aspect, the monetary aspect makes you feel like you can't ask for something or makes them feel like they have the control. Mm-hmm. And, and they oh. do, because if yeah. you don't have the money, like, what are you going to do? Absolutely. So there was that pressure. And so I thought, okay, I really want to do it, but I need to make money, but I need to be home with my kids all the time. And I was a very hands-on mom. So I'm like, how can I fucking a job? And we had gone to strip clubs together, he and I in the past. So I thought, oh, I'll just... What what any mother would think? Drip. And I was gonna say, why didn't you wait tables or something? <laughs> when I waited tables, I used to wait tables in a state that had stripping and my state didn't. And I remember this guy that owned the strip club used to come in. And the amount of money he would offer me or say that I could make in comparison to what I was making waiting tables right. in a very lucrative wait waiting table job. So I'm sure that, you know. There was, yeah, anyway, I said, why didn't you wait tables? But I can imagine. But you know what, though? I didn't, this is the crazy thing is it didn't even cross my mind. I think that just made sense to me. It really, that's where I was so, my head was so messed up. And also I needed something in the middle of the night. Most restaurants aren't open. So that's what I would do. I would be with my kids all day and then put them to bed. 
And then I would go to the strip club and I would be at the strip club until three o'clock in the morning. And then I would leave the strip club. By the way, I, would, I was the only dancer who had a power shake, a power shake, a protein shake in my locker. I never had a sip of alcohol or touched a drug the whole time I was doing that because calories. So I would leave and I would get home, change, go to the 24-hour gym, do my workout, come back, take a shower, be up with the kids. And I could go two or three days without sleeping. And you said to me before we started, oh, we'll see how I do. I didn't get much sleep last night. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're just talking, but not even thinking about the fact that this is part of your story, that you just wouldn't sleep because you I would go sleep. Yeah. kids, work, gym, kids, etc. And it's crazy because I wasn't tired. I remember being I, so hyper. And I remember mm. the young that other moms at school must think I'm on something because I just, I wasn't tired. I don't remember being tired. I could do it and I could do it and I could do it. But that was just, that was my normal at that point. It didn't, it didn't feel normal. I knew it was wrong, which is why there was so much shame attached to it. Like I never felt good about what I was doing, but it was the whole control thing, right? Trying to get a little bit of control. I liked that fact that I had some money. It went to the household. I wasn't buying myself stuff with it. I felt good that I can buy groceries. I felt good that I could contribute that. Again, it's like earning my place. And yeah, and I even question the use of the word wrong because I feel like I don't want to put that kind of judgment on it. Like it probably looking back on it, it probably is not making you feel good about what you were doing because of the reasons you were doing it. But at the same time, to be able to have some sort of autonomy, it doesn't feel like I can put that judgment on you. No, and that's, that's one thing I make very clear. It's never a comment on strippers. Like I don't, mm. it's never that because I will say that I carry a lot of shame. I carried, no more, a lot of shame around things I did during that time, but not the dancing. I don't carry shame around that. I don't think there's anything shameful in that. But it, just like you said, it was my reasons for it. It was my doing it out of spite. It was my doing it to to get some attention, to get, to get validation. It was not a healthy situation. And then the dancing aside, that other part hurts my heart for who I used to be when I would share myself with people who I knew didn't care about me. I didn't care about them. But, oh, they were interested in me or, oh, they wanted me. So I'm going to go. I'm going to do because it makes me feel valid. There's what the shame is. But not anymore. Again, I was doing the best I could. Yeah. And that's what I say in my book, right? It's dedicated to anyone who's struggling to forgive themselves for the mistakes they made when they were just trying to survive. And that's how I see that now. I did a lot of things just trying to get through my life with no support. And that's the key. I had no support. And, and I was sad. It, it's a tough thing. But I did end up getting out of it all. And there's a chapter in my book that's uh, called The Reckoning. And it's, uh, it was my hardest chapter to write because I, it, it's when I realized that even though I felt that what I was doing was dangerous, what I was doing wasn't healthy for me, I felt like if something happens to me, I deserved it. In The Reckoning, I realized I was hurting other people. There was collateral mm -hmm. damage and I couldn't handle that. It's just, I didn't want to hurt other people. And so I got out of that and I got healthy. I got healthy went to an eating disorder program. I 
became a body image advocate and activist and created a program for kids that I brought to schools. Everything was great. My marriage was my marriage. It was still, I still felt like it wasn't where I was supposed to be. However, there was still that shame I carried. And I felt this is what I deserve. I don't deserve anything better. And I still want to be the best mom. So I stayed for a very long time in my marriage. And the key thing with me is that I could call that one chapter in my life that I was doing all these great things and I got back on track, but that's not my favorite chapter because I still had all that shame. I still felt like I did bad things because I was a bad person. And yeah, I have to imagine even just the fact that you were able to stay with your husband at that point, it was still, yeah, it was like part of your life. You said, okay, I'm getting this part right. And I don't want to have anything happen to me because of my kids and because of other things, but it still was like you weren't giving yourself enough worth. Yeah. And it wasn't parts of the marriage were good. And it was, what do I expect? Oh, I absolutely felt like I didn't deserve better. I didn't deserve to be super happy. I didn't deserve, I didn't really think it existed anyway, but I carried so much shame and fear. Oh my God, fear. Because what if, what if I'm doing a body image workshop at a school and there's some parent there who recognizes me from stripping or I slept with someone's Mm. husband or that's going to be awful. And then my kids find out. And then it, it was terrifying walking through the grocery store. And I talk about this in my book. I remember a day walking through the grocery store with my kids and they were still young. And a man walked by and looked at me enough where one of my sons said, why is that man looking at you like that? And I thought either maybe he thinks, and I think I said to him, maybe he thinks I'm somebody he knows, which could have been, maybe he was trying to flirt, but my head was like, did I sleep with him? <laughs> yeah. Did I strip for him? Like it was, and I was terrified that he was going to say And that was a, an awful way to live. And so I had a bit of a breakdown where I stopped doing my workshops because I thought that's hypocritical for me to try to tell people to be comfortable with themselves and talk about self-esteem when I didn't feel that. And I went into a bit of a depression. And again, right back to being 17 and feeling like I don't deserve to be here. And I would I spent a year questioning if I should mm. be here or not. Would my kids be better off if I wasn't here anymore? And luckily- and What a terrible thing to feel as a mother that that your kids might be better off just if you didn't exist. I think for a big chunk of the time, I felt that way, questioning if I really felt like I was taking up resources and space that I didn't deserve. And the first part of that, I thought I could never take myself out of the world because I wouldn't do that to my children. And then I got to a point where I thought then maybe they would be better off. So it, it's an awful situation to be in. I think, <laughs> I think the thing that kept me was I thought if there's an afterlife and my mom and brother are there, they would be really pissed off at me if I did that. <laughs> They'd be so mad. So I didn't. But then I had a, a, a random interaction with this woman at the grocery store who made a comment to me that just a stranger made a comment to me about how she sees me and I've got this spark. And I'm like, what? Mm. She saw something in me. I was like, who is she talking? She saw something in me. I thought I was done. I thought you're given a certain amount of strength and I had used mine up and I was done. But she saw something so different in me. How she, Every time she sees me at the store and I've got this light and I'm like, who is she talking? But it really, like it, I remember crying because I thought, who? Like it, I felt so disconnected from that. But it, it lit something in me because it really made me think maybe I'm not done yet. Maybe I'm still in there. I don't mm-hmm. feel it, but maybe I don't see it, 
but there's still mercy in there. There's still something in there. And that's when I decided to make some changes. And that was the real change when I decided, okay, I'm going to work on getting myself to a place where I can leave my marriage. I'm going to get myself healthy and physically, emotionally. And that's what I did. And that was the first life changer. And I left my husband when I was 46. And it's still though, I still held on to some shame until I decided I was turning 50 and I was going to write my book. I was going to tell my story. I was going to expose every one of the secrets that I'd kept fiercely guarded for two decades and let the chips, what do they say? Lie where they fall, where they lie. Fall where they lie. <laughs> and that was it. And that was a complete turning point. So I definitely want to talk a bit about The Good Stripper, your book, but I also want to go back a little bit to your body image advocacy and the work you've done with kids and everything, because I know it's gotten you loads of awards in Canada and that you're really recognized for these programs you put together to try to help kids not maybe end up with the body image issues that you faced. It wasn't something I planned. I didn't decide, okay, I'm going to become a body image advocate or I'm going to create a program or I'm going to speak at schools. It wasn't that at all. (laughs) it was, I had come out of this eating disorder program. I was healthy for the first time. I was so grateful for that. And my kids were in elementary school and they would come home and tell me about the stuff that they were learning about health in school. Mm. And I was livid because it was all about weight. They had programs coming into the school where they'd have people who were like looking and criticizing their lunches. There were kids who were hiding food. It was so upsetting to me that I couldn't not say something. Mm -hmm. And I went into their school and I said to the principal, I don't like the messages that they're getting. And I'd like to share a different one. And he was like, okay, come in on Friday. And I was like, what? What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not ready to present something. I just don't like what you're doing. (laughs) But I did. I threw some pictures on a bristle board and I went in, I spoke with the eighth graders. And we just had this amazing conversation about pressure through media and through marketing and Photoshop. And I told my story. And the amazing thing was that they just wanted more and they wanted to talk and they wanted to share how they were feeling. And there there was no other program. And this is back maybe 2007. So there was, this is what Facebook was just starting. So we didn't Mm. have the body positivity stuff. And I would, the reason I was doing so much TV and media was because nobody else was talking about it. It's not glamorous to talk about the fact I ate stuff out of the garbage or whatever. It's just, it's not. And so I was so open and so honest about that part of my life that I think the kids felt safe coming to me. And it just Mm. became, again, I didn't expect it to go further than that, but a student would tell their parent who had another sibling at another school, or it just, it became a word of mouth thing. And then I was being asked to speak at different schools. And then I started a program where I would speak to the kids. And then I would go back a week later and speak with the parents. And I would share what the kids were expressing so they could understand because sometimes the kids Mm -hmm. couldn't talk with their parents. And what's wild is I started when I put together Fit versus Fiction, it was for grades four and up. And then I remember the day I got a call from a vice principal of a school who said, can you speak to first graders? And I thought, oh my God, they're like six years old. I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> and I put together something for that, which was yeah, obviously it was different. It was more yeah. about self-esteem rather than I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of eating disorders with kids that little. And I went in and it was heartbreaking to me that 
they asked me to do that because they were seeing an issue with kids that young. It really is. It's awful. There was a principal who had called me and said that they had, it's Canada, it's cold here in the winter. And they had a little girl had come in with her mother and the mother was just so frustrated because it was freezing. And the girl wouldn't wear her coat because she said it made her look fat. This was, and this was kindergarten, kindergarten. So that was an issue, but I went in and I remember, I will never forget this. And it was such a long time ago, but I will never forget. It was boys and girls, this little boy walking out at grade one. And I didn't know if I could keep their attention. And the little boy, as they're walking out, looked at me, he goes, that wasn't boring at all. (laughs) (laughs) But even when I would speak at high schools and a lot of people would say to me, I don't know what you're doing because you're talking to them either when they're too young or by high school, they're already done. Like it's not going to be helpful, which was so untrue. But I remember speaking with boys and uh, talking to them about bodybuilding and just the myths behind the outside and how, what fit really means and how sometimes bodybuilders, and I knew because I was bodybuilding, you're actually destroying your body by trying to, you can put out this Mm -hmm. image about how fit you look, physical appearance and physical fitness are two different things. And I remember being a few weeks later at a food court at a mall with my children and this teenager who was in the class came over and he's like, is where you know you've ruined fitness magazines for me? <laughs> there you go. My job is done. What blew me away also was I had a couple of mothers say to me, I'm a little afraid that if you go in and start talking to them about it, then they'll start thinking about it. Like maybe they have, I'm like, if you don't think they're thinking about it by the time they hit school, then you're missing, you're missing it because The messages are, especially now, but the messages are coming from everywhere. So our messages have to be louder and sooner. Well, it's the same as somebody who says, don't tell my, don't talk about sex education in school or something. And it's like kids are seeing it from a very young age. Then they get to the point that they start feeling things. And if they don't know what those things are, they definitely, or even going back to a parent giving the choice about whether to be stressed, whether to, how to handle their illness. Like we are all equipped from a very young age to make decisions and to make wrong ones. But mm-hmm. if we know all of the facts, we are much less li- likely to make the wrong ones and more likely to make the right ones. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that what you're doing with all of that just makes so much sense because I think about just recently, I saw a post that was about how they present the food groups and stuff here. And it's exactly the same as they did when I was a kid. Here's the pyramid and here's how many of this you should have. And somebody was really angry because they were focusing on like calories in, calories out. And I'm so brainwashed because that's what I was always told that it took me a minute as a fitness coach myself, as a body positive advocate. I like. I want to think that I'm promoting healthy body images, not mm-hmm. skinny, whatever. And yet I still had to think about it for a while to go, oh, that is a bad thing. I really mm-hmm. had to think about it because we are all so brainwashed. You know what it is too, though? Yeah, just to say, it's funny too, because we get hooked on the whole calorie things, especially that I feel that's such a 70s and 80s thing too with calorie counting and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, so I'd have kids say to me, is 100 calories a lot? And I'm like, 100 calories of what? That's yeah. what they're not. They're, and, but adults do that too. And that's the thing. And I had to learn that. I had to learn that also coming out of my eating disorder. You look at something, you go, oh God, that's got 500 calories. That's a lot. Not if it's healthy protein, but what is it made of? And we don't care. That's the thing. It's people will look at numbers. Oh, that has this much fat. Okay, but what kind of fat? And we need fat. And fat's not a bad word. It's a nutrient. We need it for shiny hair and clear skin and all of this stuff. 
But it's the numbers when you don't know what it means. So just to go by numbers, that's it's so incredibly dangerous. And I remember, oh, I remember going to a school, high school to talk, and they were so proud of themselves, the staff. They said, oh, so we cleaned up our vending machines. Uh, we took out all the pop and replaced it with diet pop. Uh, and I said, that is my pet peeve. <laughs> so I said, okay, here's the problem with that. I said, you've just told them it's about calories and that's it, not health. You're not focused on health at all. You're telling them to be afraid of sugar, but to be okay with the chemicals. There's no education there. They're, that's the, such a terrible message. But they thought they were doing a good thing simply because sugar causes obesity and diabetes and sugar will make you fat and fat's unhealthy. It's a terrible message. It's a terrible message. I have to stand on my soapbox about that for a minute because there is the sugar tax here on soda pop. I cannot, I don't drink it as a rule, but every once in a while there's, it's, I don't want to say it's a treat because then it's again, going into this whole thing. Right. But I do feel from time to time, it's really nice mm -hmm. to have a soda or something. You, It's really difficult to just get regular soda here. And I have a real issue with, again, choice, but I feel as an adult, I should be able to get this soda that is, yes, sugar. It's all white sugar. It's still chemical, but it's not the same Never. as the crap that they're putting in diet soda. Right. And I just, oh, I just, it's but it's not about the health. It's about the calories and the sugar. It, but that's the thing I say all the time. But here's the thing too, and I will admit, because anyone knows me, I, I enjoy a diet Pepsi. Like I am not going to, I don't have it often, but I do. And I like the taste of it more than the regular one. For me, it's about balance. For me, it's a, like I didn't, with my kids, I didn't give them any of the diet stuff. And I, and I, when I was eating disordered, I lived on the diet stuff. Mm -hmm. Terrifies me now to think about that. But so now for me, it's like I've learned I don't have any, there's nothing that's banned. There's nothing that I don't let myself. If I want something, I'm going to have it because I am, luckily, I'm fit. Luckily, I don't have health issues. If, healthy, if I was diabetic, then I would have to avoid sugar. I don't. Now, I know how I feel when I have too much. Enough. It's like you said, as an adult, right? We know how our bodies feel. And I think that's what it comes down to. It's instead of listening to what your scale says, listen to how your body feels. Instead of listening to what a diet, quote unquote, expert says, listen to what your body is telling you. I think we're so afraid and there's such a fear. There's such a fat phobia in our society. It's the same reason why you will see a, a ton of Sports Illustrated models who are very thin. And I'm going to pass judgment only because I'm talking about a specific type. There, are, there have been models who've come out and talked about the really unhealthy things that they went to, that they put their bodies through in order to look super skinny, really unhealthy. And nobody has a problem with that. And then if there's a quote unquote plus size model, everyone's going, but her health, but her health. And it's, I'm sorry, but if you have an issue with a plus size model with her weight, but not, you're not concerned about the unhealthy situations that the ultra thin models put their bodies through, then it's not a health thing. You just don't find them as attractive and that bothers you. You're bothered mm -hmm. because they are happy and successful in a body that you don't approve of. That's your issue. But don't tell me it's a health thing because you cannot tell how healthy somebody is by how they look. Absolutely. And as a fitness triathlon coach, I see so many people of all different body types and the things that they can do. Don't tell me that they're less healthy than somebody that has sat around and not done anything. I do think you know that to judge someone's health by the way they look is just 
it's not accurate. It's, it's so old fashioned too. Like I find, have we not moved forward with that? All the research shows that somebody who's a little bit overweight, let's say, is an active, is healthier than somebody who is thinner and completely sedentary. Mm-hmm. So it really is about so much more than just how somebody looks. But we are so brainwashed, as you said, from what we've been seeing in magazines. And on. I love when I see now a commercial or an ad for something, and I am seeing a fuller body. And I'm like, that's what we need to see. It needs to be, ah, we just, we need to normalize different shapes and sizes. We really do. Because otherwise we're going to try keep trying to kill ourselves to fit into something that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I think we all are different shapes and sizes and you have a place that you're meant to be. Your body knows what it is. To try to force yourself into, like this trainer said to you, I can make you look like a fitness model. To put that image, like what is a fitness model? What is a a runway model? Mm -hmm. And we have a societal- Yeah, exactly. And and let me tell you, I I was starving. I remember saying to him at one point, and remember again, I was- 30, early 30s, I had two little kids that I was with all the time. And I remember saying to him, I was at a school thing and I felt like I was going to pass out. He said, okay, good. It means you're doing it right. It means you're doing it right. There was one point when I was allowed to have a quarter cup of water a day. That was the only liquid I was allowed to have. I don't remember how long I went on for it, but I was allowed to have a quarter cup of water. It was the peak of summer and I was working out. Because I was going to be taking pictures and I needed to suck up everything. Yeah. I didn't get my period for a year. It was very unhealthy, but it looked, hey, I looked, I did look like a super, <laughs> like a fitness model. Couldn't, it wasn't strong. <laughs> it certainly wasn't healthy. My body wasn't working right. But that it was an image, right? You're, it's all about image over a function of your body. And that's why I said earlier, it's, we confuse physical appearance with physical fitness and physical appearance is how my body looks to you. Physical fitness is how my body feels and works. And we me. won't even get into like the whole mental fitness behind all of it, because obviously right. you could look what society says is great, but if you haven't eaten in days, you haven't had any water, <laughs> you're not feeling great. You said at 50, you felt like you were really ready to tell your story. Was there something else that changed or was it just, I've left my marriage, I'm ready, the life is better? <laughs> I think it was a few years after I left my marriage. Still, I was still trying to figure out who I was. And I think I got to a point, I think 50 for some reason, I don't know, the big number. <laughs> I think I have, as I said, I mean, my mother died at 56. My father ended up passing away at 60. My brother was 21. I almost died at 29. I really did feel like there are so many more years behind me than ahead of me. I don't know how much time is ahead of me, but I'm pretty sure there's less ahead of me than behind me. And I didn't want to waste another second not being fully me. I felt, I really did feel that. I felt like I was like pushing down some good parts of me because I was still so afraid if I was too much me, then people would, for some reason, figure out my stories, that my past would come out and then it would destroy me, it would destroy my family. And I just got to this point where I was like, why, why do I care? Why do I care? I've been through a lot. I've survived it. And I'm just tired of hiding. It really, maybe I was just tired. I don't know. <laughs> but I felt like I deserved to be happy. I did. I finally felt like I deserved to be happy. And I felt the only way I could do that was to be honest. And Writing the book was one thing because it did 
open my eyes to certain things, which is why I tell people all the time, even if you don't plan on publishing it, I say write your story down because sometimes it gets stuck in our heads and it circles and it circles. And until you get it out and you see it on paper, that's when it makes sense. And so there were things that I thought I had dealt with until I put it on paper, I didn't really get it. So I had felt shame around certain things. And then I looked at it and went, oh, wait, now I know why I thought that way. Or now I understand why I felt that way. Or now I get why I did that. And it was so liberating because I was so much nicer to myself. Mm -hmm. And I say this all the time, but it's so true that I spent so much of my life hating myself for what I did to survive instead of loving the fact that I did survive. And being proud of that and not worrying about the fact that it was messy and dirty and clumsy and not pretty, I made it to the other side. And now instead of me looking back at the woman that I was when I was struggling and was so sad and so alone, instead of looking at her and thinking, oh, that was, she was messed up. I felt so much empathy. I feel so mm-hmm. much empathy. And I also, I'm proud that I did get through that and was able to be the mother that I wanted to be. and. Even though I was, again, putting my health at risk. And there was obviously some guilt still there, kind of. But I'm, I've really forgiven myself. And that was major. And I, uh, But I'll tell you this. I didn't know how people were going to react to my story. I decided that if I was going to tell it, I was going to tell it. And not hold back. And not hold back the things that don't make me look good. Because there are some things in there that <laughs> do not make me look good. But they're honest. And I wasn't going to hold back anything. I had somebody ask me if I ever thought about writing it anonymously. And I'm like, how do you write a book about giving up shame? And then you hide who you are. Like, no, I, <laughs> I couldn't. And the only people that I worried about were my children who were yeah. teenagers at the time, later teenagers, older teenagers. And I just worried what they would think. And I say that at the same time, I want to make clear that. I thought if they are mad at me because of either stuff I did or because I was sharing stuff I did, that would be, they would break my heart. However, I needed to do it. I felt that I had reached this point where I really believed that even if they were mad at me, it would be temporary. I felt like they would get older and they would understand more. So I didn't think I would lose them, but it was so important for me as just a human being on this planet, to be honest. And luckily, they were phenomenal from the second I told them what the book was about. They didn't know anything about the stuff I'd done. And they were, both of them were unbelievable with me. And it's interesting because all that fear that I kept forever (laughs) was for nothing. That they were just, their thought was, you were there. We don't remember you ever not being there for us. And Mm -hmm. you did what you felt you had to do. And we had very happy childhoods. Mm -hmm. We're in your corner. And that was everything. I feel very lucky for that. And then as far as when it first came out, there was this, you're waiting for everything to just, you're waiting for the world to explode. You're waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't. And instead, I had so many people reaching out to me. People, first of all, there are people I'd gone to camp with when I was seven who were reaching out to me about it. There were people, strangers from all over the world telling me their stories and how they connected mm-hmm. and All those things where I thought, oh my God, people are going to hate me because I did this horrible thing. People are going, oh my God, I did that too. Or, oh, thank God, someone else is saying that because I can't tell anyone this, but I feel so much better knowing that other people have done things too and they're not bad people. And 
it was such a connector. So I, here I was thinking, I'm going to tell my story and people are going to run away from me. And instead, I had so many more people coming towards me and coming mm-hmm. into my circle. And it's a way to, it, the truth connects you. It, the lies keep you away, but the truth connects you. And it, would, it was the best thing I ever did. It's so liberating. When you've already embarrassed yourself, when you put everything out there, oh my God, it's so liberating. I guess it's kind of like if you walk around naked in public. Then wearing a bathing suit isn't so embarrassing. You know what I mean? But if you've never done that, <laughs> but if you've ever done that, the thought of a ba- bathing suit, a bikini is terrifying, but you've already done it. Then what? And that's how I feel now. Also, I feel like what an amazing way to take back control. Like you've slowly taken back control, but all that fear you had, all that, oh, is somebody going to come up to me in the grocery store? Is somebody going to out me in public? You were like, you can't because I'm doing it myself and I'm telling exactly. it my way. Exactly. I, that's exactly it. Somebody, If somebody were to come up to me now and be like, I heard that you, page 72. Read the good stripper. Exactly. That's <laughs> this it. is it's your in, chapter. It's, it's in there. It's exactly. So that's the, there's a quote that says something like, you can't be shamed for something you don't feel ashamed about. And so- all that power that I was giving to whoever, that's gone because it's not that I feel like I have so much control over my life because I still feel like life is really unpredictable. Anybody who says they do, I'd be like, you're lying. Exactly. That's a dangerous place to be when you feel like it because then something happens and it's it's hard to deal with that. But I I feel that part of me, that self-esteem part that I didn't have, I lost at 17, but I got back at 50. That was a long time coming, but that is, it's such a foundation. And I do believe that I have it because I did have this amazing support system when I was younger and I've had to find my way back to it without having that support system. And that's been tough and it's still tough at times. But I do think that even when we think that we're not strong, when people tell me all the time, oh, you're so strong, I'm always like, well, it's because I didn't feel safe. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes people who are strong is because they had to be strong because they didn't feel safe. And the world is still a scary place, but there's this drink in me that I have now that just comes from feeling grounded in who I am. And I haven't had that since I was a teenager. And so anyone who says, and you hear this a lot, and I just posted something about this. I hear from women all the time about how they get to a certain age, 40s, 50s, where they feel like they're disappearing. They feel Mm -hmm. like they're invisible in society. And I think it's so crazy to me because I honestly believe that it takes decades and decades to become who we are as human beings. I absolutely We agree. have to learn lessons. We have to go through experiences. I do think I'm on chapter 17, at least, of my life. <laughs> but I think that's the point is that you do, you evolve and you change and then you figure out what do I want? What do I need? What will I accept? What will I not accept? And our boundaries, I had no boundaries. Now my boundaries are very high and very strong, but it takes this long. So to say that we're done in our 40s and 50s is, I think we're terrifying. That's what I think. I think society wants us to disappear because this is when we're most powerful. That's what I think. I absolutely agree. And the reason I'm so determined to get as many stories about women over 35, over 40, over 50, over 60, et cetera, Mm -hmm. out in the world is because people do try to put that damper on it, but we are so much more interesting. Like we've lived, like I'm I'm more interesting for the painful things I've gone through, for the challenges I've overcome and for some of the good things that have happened too. But I wasn't this person 20 years ago. 
And that's probably oh the God, time no. that people thought that I would have these amazing stories and let's put this age in a film and let's put this age in a book and let's make this the heroine of the story. The heroine of the story is either mm-hmm. here now or still yet to come. Yeah. So it's not only that society wants to quiet us down because they're afraid of us. I think they want, they're still telling women that they're not worthy after a certain age. And I think that's why it's so important that you do this because I think that women need to hear from other women who are getting older that aging, aging isn't the problem. Like we're all going to age, but it's, it, when people say age is just a number, it drives me crazy. I hate that. Age is not just a number. It's not. You're diminishing my experiences. You're Mm. diminishing my growth and my wisdom. So it's not just a number. It's amazing. It's so many more things and it's not to be cliched, but it is something that not everyone gets to experience. Absolutely. So to be terrified, and it's so, I, I will never understand. It's a natural thing for human beings. We get older. So to spend all of our energy fighting something that is completely natural is going to happen. We're wasting so much time when we could be out there kicking ass and we have to really stop focusing on what we can't change. And why should we even want to need to? We are doing ourselves a disservice and we are doing the people around us a disservice by not being as big and bold as we could possibly be. I say, like, just be outrageous. I'm so outrageous. And that's, and that makes me the happiest. I'd rather be outrageous. I'd rather have people go, what is she? What does she do? (laughs) There's an expression too. If at least once a day, someone doesn't walk away from you shaking their head, like, what is she up to? You're doing something wrong. So I got that covered. Someday it won't be about shaking their heads anymore because people will come around to the fact that this is what a 50 year old woman does or this was dyeing your hair blue isn't something for young people or I don't know. That's just such a random example. But I like to dance Mm -hmm. in public. Get over it. (laughs) I do that all the time. I'm known for that. I walk down the street and dance all the time. I don't want to be predictable. Life isn't predictable. So I've stopped trying to make myself predictable. I think you've said and done some pretty inspirational things, but I think now is an interesting time for me to bring up that you do not like inspirational quotes, that you're not a fan. (laughs) I will say I ask for a quote, but my quotes tend to be fully interpretable as in, I don't expect age is just a number. If you brought me that, I'd be like, okay, this is an interesting interview, but I'm not including your quote. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer the ones that people say, oh, it's not really an inspirational quote, but my mom used to say, or Mm. I've had a hard time and when I'm really struggling. So will you share your your non-inspirational quote with us Yes, (laughs) I know. I have such a disdain for cliche, but- I heard a quote once that I just, it just resonated with me and I just liked it. And it's by L iron word. And it says, she's no Barbie. She's wonder woman with a sailor's mouth. And I just loved it. I just loved it. It's to me, it's just, you see it. It's powerful. It's empowering. And I think it's me. And amazingly, we somehow gotten through this whole interview with, I think, neither of us really using our sailor's mouth. This was very clean. I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to be good. <laughs> I really do like that quote. I would love somebody to describe me in that way. Wonder Woman, exactly. what could be better, right? But a slightly exactly. launchy Wonder Woman, even better. <laughs> I know. I just love it. I will remind everyone that the book is called The Good Stripper. I will obviously include all your links and such in the show notes. There is a lot in there we did not talk about and definitely an interesting story. Do you have anything else you would like to let listeners know? I'll just say the book is also an audiobook for people who don't feel like reading. It's also an audible so you can listen to me tell my story. 
I'm just going to say, don't let fear hold you back from being whoever you want to be. That's it. And I think, sorry to tell you, but that was pretty inspirational. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Not cliche, but inspirational nonetheless. Well, Marcy, it's been so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And we look forward to seeing what's next. Me too. But thank you so much for chatting. I appreciate it so much. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35+. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.